I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Now, before we begin, uh, I want to tell you that there are some dates coming up. Uh, well, just one date for now, but more are coming. I'm back out on the road, <laughs> on the road, uh, more like 10 minutes from my house at the local bookstore, but still, uh, it, it takes a road to get there. Uh, I will be interviewing uh, U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Speer March 15th at the Montclair Presbyterian Church. Uh, that's at 7 p.m. Uh, I will be talking to Congresswoman Speer about her new book, Undaunted. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, she is a survivor of the Jim Jones Airport firefight in Guyana uh, back in the 70s. And uh, it's, a, it's a harrowing story. But the book is not just about that. It's also about the struggles that Congresswoman Speer faced once she got home. Uh, I won't spoil it for you, but she's been through a lot. And uh, it's a triumphant book, uh, one that, uh, that teaches us to be ferociously resilient. Let's just say this. The book is called Undaunted for a reason. Again, that's March 15th, 7 p.m., Montclair Presbyterian Church in Oakland. Uh, if you live nearby, uh, get in your car and come on over. Uh, if you don't live nearby, if you live out of the country or out of the state, get on a plane and come on over. If you can't find a plane to get on, maybe you could borrow one from a friend. Uh, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be a great night. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. Okay? All right. Uh, this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Okay. Let's just call it what it is without the twists. And we'll never, 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 never see your like again You are missed, and that is clear I learnt a lot here And we'll never, 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 never see your like again There are moments when a dancer sings on the road some call it homage, some call it garbage You borrow for a later date These days are still great The last temptation of Brussels The last temptation of Brussels Though you are no longer here One thing is really clear That I'll never, 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 never see your like again That is the music of Bill Pritchard, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Bill Pritchard. Bill Pritchard's self-titled debut album came out with very little fanfare back in 1987. And when you think about it, that year was a fanfare kind of year. Listen to just some of the records that were released in 1987. The Smiths' Louder Than Bombs, R.E.M.'s Document, The Cure's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, The Replacements' Please to Meet Me, U2's The Joshua Tree, In Excess's Kick, The Cult's Electric, I could go on. But I think you get my point. What I'm trying to say is that if an album by an unknown artist on an unknown label hit shelves in 1987, if it was going to stand a chance... It had better be good. And Bill Pritchard's album was far, far better than good. 
Released on the British indie label Third Man, the British-born Pritchard's debut was a smooth blend of crooning pop and effortless indie rock that fell somewhere between the Jazz Butcher Conspiracy's distressed gentlefolk and the Wild Swans bringing home the ashes. Now, Pritchard's recorded start ended up mirroring an element that would define his career. That element? Well, he was hard to categorize. Even on his record label, there was literally no one who sounded remotely close to Bill Pritchard. In fact, it was the exact opposite. All right, so here were some of his label mates. The Canadian industrial band Frontline Assembly, the experimental ambient group Controlled Bleeding, and the ethereal new wave outfit Heavenly Bodies. You know, looking back, Third Mind was kind of a weird label. But one thing you couldn't deny, they had range. Now, Pritchard garnered instant critical acclaim for his debut, and, capitalizing on that momentum, less than a year later, he put out the Half a Million record in 1988. Then, he left Third Mind Records and signed to the Belgian label Play It Again Sam Recordings, who, coincidentally, and weirdly enough, also had industrial bands on their roster. Who'd they have? Well, groups like Meat Beat Manifesto and Front 242. It's really weird how industrial music followed the least industrial musician around, but what are you going to do? Anyway, Pritchard's split record with French singer Daniel Dark in 1989 began his considerable following in France, but his biggest commercial success came thanks to Three Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, an album that charted high on the CMJ college charts and yielded a single called Tommy and Company, that was all over MTV's 120 Minutes. In 1991, Pritchard's Ian Brody-produced Jolie album found him making inroads in Japan and Canada. And four years later, he formed a short-lived band called Beatitude. And then, well, he kind of vanished for about 10 years. Then, in 2005, he reappeared. He put out the album by Paris, by Taxi, by Accident, and then... He vanished again for another 10 years, but he came back again in 2014, and he's been releasing records regularly ever since. His new one is called Midland Lullabies, and it found Stereo Embers Magazine's senior editor Dave Cantrell swooning in the following way. Engaging almost down to a molecular level, he writes, on Midland Lullabies, Bill Pritchard has far surpassed his stated wisecrack goal going into its recording. Something about being known as a shabby-suited crooner. And instead, he's emerged as a rightful heir to the dented crown and lasting accolades bestowed upon Ray Davies and Elvis Costello circa Blood and Chocolate. A career record. But they kind of always are with this guy. Cantrell's right. Well, he pretty much always is. Midland Lullabies is an album of finesse and grace. It's truly stunning work. I love this record. But let's get back to all that vanishing. As we all know, that kind of thing can give an artist a certain elusive sheen, which Pritchard has. But Pritchard is far from a recluse. As he points out in our conversation, we're talking now. Point being, typically, you can't get a recluse on the phone. <laughs> anyway... We really hit it off, so much so that this is part one of two. So enjoy my conversation with the non-reclusive and very wonderful Bill Pritchard, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. 
you know, it's strange enough, I met, I met a couple of people from San Francisco. I've never met anybody from San Francisco before. Um, in, of all places, in, um, in Tokyo. They said, oh, we used to listen to you on college radio or something. <laughs> uh, it's really odd. These, these characters, and the real characters, one of, one of them was, he, he's a brilliant bloke. He lived in Korea, and he came to see, see me play, and he, he traveled by motorbike. So he, he, he basically went from Korea down to Fukuoka, which is um, like a, a little island, and then he just traveled up Japan. Fascinating bloke, but um, yeah, but I've never been. I'd love to. I'd love to go one day. You know. Well, I think you'd really like yeah, it. Definitely. It's funny that you that you have to travel all the way to Japan to meet someone from San Francisco. I know. <laughs> In fact, you, yeah, your accent similar to. It's really weird because one of the. It was very strange. This story was there was two two lads, and lads. I mean, they're in their forties, late forties, um, and they were best mates at school and at college. But one of them went to, um, one of them basically traveled, you know, and he went all over the place. And he, he ended up in, in Asia, the Far East, and, and worked in all sorts of different things. Very interesting story. Um, and the other one stayed in San Francisco. And, uh, but they were best friends. So he came over to visit him. And uh, I, suppose, I suppose it's like uh, reliving their youth. They uh, came to watch this gig. And I ended up uh, having a big chat with them. Um, but what was even weirder was the... Well, this is weird, actually, thinking on. What was even stranger was that my... I mean, I'm so old now that I've got daughters. My eldest daughter, uh, she's you know, 22. And she's ended up um, working in Japan for a year. She's about to come home. But her best mate... Um, was also from San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, she's gone back, and she's actually got a job in some in a in a, in a newspaper or um, like a, a political journal or something in San Francisco. It's quite uh, it's quite it sounds like a really creative place, you know. It's like you know, it's very much um, the other side. See, and this is I'll be honest with you, Alex, and this just shows my ignorance, and I do apologise. I didn't even know where San Francisco was. Uh, in in respect to Los Angeles, yeah, no, it's not good, is it? No, I totally get it because I think it's common when you're not from somewhere to to not really understand where cities are in relation to each other. For example, like I, it, Melbourne and Sydney, to, that's as far yeah. as like San Francisco to LA. But like in my mind, they're right next to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the whole that's the whole thing. You see, because they were talking about oh, well, of course it's not Los Angeles, you know. And I was going, I was thinking, well, of course it's not Los Angeles because that's not the same place at all. But they were actually talking about, uh, it, it, it then ended up like it was two sides of a, of a coin. It, you know, like you've got San Francisco, which is kind of this uh, kind of rich embedment of, of left-wing uh, sort of liberalism or whatever, sure. kind of the arty left-field side. And then Los Angeles, which is lo- like the mainstream side of it. But the way I, the way they described it, because this is distance as well, Alex. This is the difference between um, European or British, a British person, or a, a European person and an American. To, to, like I, they were talking about it, like the diff, It was the difference between. I mean, there's two football teams in in Stoke, right? Stoke and Port Vale. 
Okay. And you don't, I mean, it doesn't matter. They're football teams. And they're basically three miles geographically away from each other. But they're very different places, you know? So that, to me, I had it in my mind's eye. But obviously, as you say, the, the, the actual distances are massive. Massive. But um, yeah, so there you go. San Francisco, wow, that's really cool. I mean, San Francisco, here's what it is. So whatever San Francisco made cool in the 60s, L.A. borrowed yeah. it and then commodified it. <laughs> right okay it's kind of it's yeah it's kind of like what some people think of uh what what you know england uh, you know we, it's like the, the the pop the pop stuff in england and uh a lot of the stuff that was popular and the more quirky stuff in the 60s 70s and 80s and 90s which worked in england um some of it the kind of like the, the you the Amer- you know America took on board some of it, you know what I mean, and and really commercialised it. So some things went massive and some things didn't. Um, maybe it's that sort of similarity. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. So you create so the, the people created the San Francisco, created the ideas. And, and the Los Angeles people created the wealth out of it. Is that right? That's right. So right, if you, so, like if you read like uh, like Barney Hoskins in his Waiting for the Sun book, he yeah. talks about how in the '60s a lot of the hippies were wearing ripped jeans, and then you know right. three months later you could buy those in a department store in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it's weird because I I read somewhere, and it might have been in Barney was somebody. Barney Hoskins, somebody, but they reckon that I don't know. Um, Richard Howe invented the the idea of uh, wearing um, like not ripped jeans, but uh, jeans jeans with like safety pins in them. And the and the and the and the English punk movement appropriated the the idea for Richard Howe, which is really weird. But I mean, obviously, the Blunt Generation is a brilliant song. But um, so it, it's all it's all weird. It's all the way it works, isn't it? It, it is. Barney Hoskins. Yeah, yeah. What an interesting uh, he, he's historian great. he he was. And he really gets it. I mean, for a guy who yeah. is not from here, he really understood. Uh, you know what was happening in terms of the regionalism of the '60s and the right. the commercialism of it, and really the commercialism of the hippie movement sort of um, yes. presage the commercialism of the punk rock movement. Yes. Well, it was, I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's such a mixture because um, the, the, the idea of that is, is so weird because it was very, music was in, in England was very uh, tribal. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the punk movement was, was very small, was very, very small. Initially, you know, it was fundamentally uh, like two clubs in London, and then they well, they went up and played this seminal gig in Manchester. So you ended up with about you know three, three or four um, like-minded groups in Manchester, groups of people. I mean, not just groups, you know, per se. Um, and then then it kind of then it just massively it, it it just got taken on board commercially. But of course. The the whole idea of, of the of of punk was fundamentally um, was it was it's based it's based on the seeds of uh, fundamental rock and roll from the fifties. And what I find interesting that somebody mentioned to me is that every generation always looks twenty years beha- backwards um, 
to create their music in terms of pop. So so the 70s were the 50s, the 80s were the 60s, you know, 90s, maybe were they, were they the 70s? I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's weird because, it's, and I guess it's to do with the fact that, I don't know what, it, I don't know why that is, but it does tends to be because it's what's interesting is that, um, like, my, my children's, um, the music that, that, you know, that they're creating is very much um, from the, the early 90s or to mid, you know, influenced by that as well as other things because that's the other great thing about this generation is the fact that they, they don't tribalize music, you know, and they don't also, um, it's not, it's not age specific anymore. You know, they, they'll, they'll mix and match, which is really cool. But it's certainly, I mean, I was, I mean, you know, I, 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 I still, my, my favorite time of music is still, um, like the, uh, uh, the move and, you know, I can't help it yeah. from, the, from the late and all that sort of stuff um and 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 even so, i mean obviously you know i still listen to uh love i still listen to the idol race you know um and all this sort of stuff I, um and, and and i guess it's it's sort of i follow the same i follow the trend of everybody else i suppose um but what you do is i suppose you you, you love that stuff and it kind of you kind of um you move it on in your head or you move it on with your, with your generation's experiences, don't you? You and I are the same age. Uh, and, right. and, and so I think our, our, our references are, are very similar. And I, I wonder when you listen to the move or, um, you know, bands that, that for me, like yeah. the buzzcocks or the jam, do you still oh, feel God, yeah. the same way that you felt when you listened to them at 19 or do you, do you remember how you felt? Yeah, well, do you know what? There are certain things that don't stand up with age, but um, I think a different kind of tension, for example, from the Buzzcocks is a classic. It's, it, he was a great... I mean, obviously, God rest him, he's, he's, uh, he, he passed away, didn't he? He did. Uh, Pete Shelley. But um, he was such a great um, constructor of, of, of songs. And he, I tell you what, his... A, a, he had a fantastic ear for melody. I mean, the, the, the choruses that he created were amazing, uh, really amazing. But, but the other thing is, the sophist- do you know what? The, somebody was pointing this out to me, because you don't care when you're 14, 13, 14, whatever. You don't really think about the sophistication of how somebody puts something together. But in actual fact... Um, the actual uh, the songs themselves, the structure of them are amazing. They're amazingly sophisticated. It was a it was great. It was a, it was quite complex musically um, in in terms of uh, you know the the tunes and melody. Um, but so he stands up. Whereas you know um, I don't know like oh bondage up yours X ray specs. I'm not sure if that kind of you know it's it's. I mean, the, the, uh, there are certain songs from X-Ray Specs, for example. I don't know why I'm thinking of them. I'm sort of <laughs> years, but... You know, that I thought at the time that was a brilliant album. That Daylo thing um, was a great album. Um, but I'm not sure now. Um, but then you, then you listen to something like, um, you know, you're like, I don't know, so, I'm Sick of You by Pop. 
which is um, a brilliant song. Um, and I remember listening to it uh, with me mate, The Roller, when I was, you know, and it was, again, you know, sort of 14, 15 or whatever, and uh, just listening, you know, you know, in our bedrooms and that, just listening to this song, thinking, this is amazing. And I still think it's a great tune. And I don't know whether it's, it's all, is it, is it that if I heard it now, would I feel the same way? Well, I doubt I would, because you know what? You and me ain't the same people as we were when, and, you know, thank God we've sort of moved on. Right. You know what I mean? We've developed. So it's, 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 it's impossible. It's an absolutely impossible thing to say. It's like, um, you know, would, would I, would I feel the same way about, um, uh, an album like, uh, Blonde on Blonde, uh, which, which, you know, I listened to when I was, I remember that, 12 or 13 and thinking god that's so you know amazingly weird what a, what a, this guy from outer space if i listen to it now um but then but i suppose in, in a way you you do kind of you you do along the way you do take music um and you do listen to you find new music because i mean like uh the Boo Radley's Giant Steps, for example, sure. I thought it was an amazing album. Now, I don't know when that came out, but it must have come out in the 90s, I guess. And that was just, I just thought that was an incredible album. And like, I, um, I've been listening to um, stuff by a, um, a band called Junior. Now, this is an interesting one. They're a Paris band, and their influences are very kind of, yeah, yeah, Gansburg, but, and then they've got, and they, you know, uh, there's a lot of kind of spectresque production, but it's very modern at the same time. Now, I don't know if I just like the fact that they're singing about streets in Paris, or I do I like that, or do I appreciate their modernity? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, anyway, I'm rambling. I no, no, no. I, I love this because it has a lot to do, I think, with the age that you are when you take the art in. Yeah. Right. I mean, definitely. You know, like yeah. for like for me. Like the slits, that album, that first album right. holds up for me. That or you know the Pogues or the Jam or there are there are albums that are just eternal uh, for me. But yeah. that moment, Bill, where you realize that oh shoot, I don't think I love this the way I used to. It, that moment where you yeah. acknowledge that sort of obsolescence to me, it's kind of like not being sexually attracted to someone you used to be sexually attracted <laughs> to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You see the flaws. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you see the grease paint. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's a weird one because I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Well, uh, the Slits, but you know what? They they are one of the bands, these the sorts of bands who um, influence every generation, you know. They weren't, they weren't enormously um, successful, but they were very uh, influential at the time, um, because they were, you know, they were out there. But they, because I think their um, their integrity and honesty seems to seem to appeal to every generation. It's ever so strange, the slit. They're a strange one. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I've just suddenly thought. It's it's weird. Is I've been listening to um, a lot of beef Captain Beefheart stuff that I haven't listened to for for ages. Like the Spotlight Kid. Now I was a massive, massive Captain Beefheart fan, and do you know what? I will tell you what, Alex, I still am. I 
tell you, it's mm. just absolutely fantastic. You know, this it's it's like uh, I mean, there's a there's a song called Tropical Hot Dog Night, which uh, to, to me again, it's probably the allure of the fact that uh, it's 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 you know American and all this kind of stuff. To me, it's like wow, but um, it it just it still tastes and smells like what he's trying to talk about. Like I've got a picture and I've got a sense of the of, of what of what he's trying to explain. Whether it's the same place as what he's trying to explain, I've absolutely no idea. Um, but there's, but like I say, like the, the splits, I think certain music um, genuinely does stand out uh, and does does seem to kind of not lose its uh, attraction. And I feel bad for music because no one walks through an art gallery and looks at a Da Vinci painting and goes, oh, that didn't really hold up. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. You know? Well, I know that there's, um, it's, it's weird as well. Well, there was, um, I think he's called Martin and this is totally, uh, you know, out of the thing, but last week, one of my, uh, my daughters goes to a kind of union in Manchester, which is not far from where I live. And we went to see the art gallery there and there's, um, there's a there's an amazing um, photograph um, uh, exhibition at the moment by a bloke. I think his name's Martin Parr, P A R, and he he's taken uh, streets from Manchester from um, and he started in in the eight. So it's a similar age to us, maybe slightly older, maybe a generation older. Um, but he started in the uh, I think it was the late. 70s or mid 70s he started taking these photographs and he's taken them every single so he's taken a series of, of studied photographs every single year every single decade i should say so there's four lots of sets of them um and and they are absolutely amazing but what's interesting is like you say if you see them as a whole you see this is the other thing um you, you can see you can see people's work uh, as a body of work like he can, you can with him because he's got this this um, two rooms full of his his photographs and, and they they, they, fall, they they follow a chronology, a logical chronology from the seventies. And his last last set was two thousand and eighteen. It must be because it was the he he, he he's got um, like a, a royal wedding, and I think the last royal wedding we had was last year or something. Um, which, which interestingly, as my daughter pointed out, nowhere in Manchester did they, did they celebrate it, but they celebrated in the little villages around it. It was quite an interesting uh, um, political observation. Yeah. But, um, but so, like, like with, with art, like with photographs, you can see them and you can still see them. And also, I'm not, I'm not, um, because it's a photograph of the seventies, I'm not saying, oh, I don't like that photograph anymore. Because it's, you know what I mean, right? Whereas with music, it's it's a hard thing because uh, mu- music is and songs are just, you know, they 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 do that. People can be so harsh and so brutal, Alex, can't they? <laughs> About oh, music, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, like, like for example, like the Style Council's, oh, you know, Confessions of a yeah. Pop Group record. I love that record. I know that it sounds yeah. very eighties, but I love that record. Yes, yes, yes. It's strange. Do you know? Um, I I find that. Um, you see, do you know what's interesting? And again, this is probably my favourite jam um, album. Was the uh, the album? I can't remember them all. Off. I'm not. Uh, 
uh, I, I wasn't at the time. I sort of got I sort of got them, and then I kind of yeah thought because they were like wallpaper to us. They were they were just there all the time. You know what I mean? On top of the pops and that. But start now. I think the song start and all that. Those, those, there's, there's a I think there's a thing about a shopkeeper as well. Um, uh, uh, and I can't even remember what the album's called. I, I've got a visual of, image of it in my face, but I reckon that that's because it was so influenced by the 60s that I particularly like that. But then there's, there's um, I mean, he wrote some great songs, which in hindsight, you just, you just like I say, like you look at wallpaper and you just accept it's there. You don't realise how, how intrinsically fantastic it or whatever. You don't analyse it almost. Um, but... Um, I, looking back on some of the songs he wrote and how prolific uh, Paul Weller was, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Like Eaton Rifles, what a song, you know? Yeah. It's such a cleverly, it's so accurate and it's so poignant for today. Nothing, nothing has really changed. Um, even if, if not, it's, it's almost more poignant now. You know, in the, the, the time we live, political time we're living now, than it was then, you know. But then you've got um, That's Entertainment, which is another classic. You know, it's just uh, an amazing songwriter. And in fact, some of the... But I think some of his solo albums, which um, when he restarted after Star Council, I thought they were great. You know, they were great albums. Yeah, big, big, uh, it's, it's like he's not the sort of person that I would kind of go, yeah, I'm a big... But he, he's kind of like, you've got a... a, a some of the songs he's written, absolutely prolific, amazing, really. Well, the other thing was interesting. Um, obviously, in Oracle, he, he was the one, he was a massive um, supporter of, uh, of, of music that, that now we, we sort of all go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. But there was like, um, we now re quite rightly venerate and regard Odyssey and Oracle, uh, whatever it's, it is, the Zombies album. Sure. Um, as something that's really special, but for a long time, um, it was it was not it was not regarded that uh, that way at all. And and Paul Weller really pushed that. In the same way, strangely enough, like everybody in in this country now, well, uh, my generation, we're, we're really into Scott Walker. Mm. You know all the thing, the solo albums, which are fantastic. You know, um, Montague Terrace and all that stuff. Now. The the person who pushed that was Julian Cope. I mean, he 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 really really kind of um, you know celebrated and trumpeted that when he was when he had his moment in the you know in the NME. Um, and uh, that's something that really uh, you know you, you sort of forget because like I'm a big Julian Cope fan, you know. I mean, and and uh, some of his solo albums. I mean, the first solo album he ever did was just absolutely tremendous. There's a song called uh, "Head Hang Low," which uh, I just think is absolutely exquisite pop song. And strangely enough, um, that's another um, that's another artist that I've you know been listening to recently, revisiting, if you like. Um, and and while a lot of it. Um, is over the top of my head. I think it's a bit extreme because some of his influences aren't my influence, whatever. Um, some of the, some of the um, 
pop songs that he's actually created are, are fantastic, you know. Let me show you a time called forever Where it's all neon lights and the debris of sights And the warm rain appears like a tangerine dream It's in a town called forever Where the taxis are sweets and it's all fizzing beats And the shimmering ghosts are the welcoming hosts Society grew, hits you over the head from tradition and all. Let's take a long stroll down forever with a real sense of G and a bubbling whiz. And Imperial Park's always up with the lark. I wait by the trap with my plastic food and fat, and I'll think about my time. Drinkers collapse and the singers save face. I'll spend a lifetime in forever. It is so intimate, so indulgently you. Such a vision of peace without anything true. Explore common sense at a reasonable expense. It's a saying about how it's always 20 years behind i remember in the 80s bands like rem and sonic youth were talking about velvet underground and everyone got into them i think the velvet underground sold more records in the 80s than they did in the 60s yes they definitely did yes what was the thing about they didn't sell they sold just like 900 there's always these 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 uh you know these figures um you know thrown about um, but it was 900. It's like that thing, isn't it? That there was 900. It's, they sold to 900 people, but all those 900 people started bands. It was like <laughs> a Manchester trade. Well, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so David Bowie was a big fan. So he did, you know, and he, he went along that way. Um, and uh, it's like it's like they, there's a Manchester um, free trade hall gig of the Sex Pistols. You know, everybody says, oh yeah, there were. According to the, you know, according to every, there was about a hundred thousand people went there. Well, I, I can tell you that, you know, it it probably takes about two hundred and fifty people at most. <laughs> but they reckon that say say seventy people turned up there, but they all started bands, you know, or they all started something. So, um, it, it, yeah, there's certain artists that are very 
behind the behind the game. So maybe some art is just so ahead of the time that it takes yeah. time to catch up to it. Do you know what I was thinking? I was thinking this, and it's really strange, Alison said, because I was thinking this right. What well, in years, hundreds of years to come, long after you and me are dead and buried and whatever, or, or uh, in our ashes or whatever it is. Right? Who are they going to be listening to? Are they going to be listening to, you see, are they going to listen to the Beatles, right? Are they going to regard that as the thing? Or are they going to just find something by Captain Beefheart and realise that that's, that's what, it, what it's about? You see, you know, I, I sometimes think Captain Beefheart was so ahead of his time, um, in a way. But that's just my personal kind of bent, you know, my take on stuff. Um, I, I just don't know. You're right. You could be ahead of his time. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll kind of lord um, something like, uh, I don't know, Martin Carr's uh, solo album he's just done or something. I don't know. Right. Um, and then they realize that that's, that's the true great, um, you know, pop of the, of, of the time. We just, you just don't know. My, my hero, you, I don't know if you've ever heard of him because he probably didn't travel that well, was a bloke called John Otway. And um, he did uh, Call Babe That's Really Free. It's absolutely genius. And I was—I mean, he didn't sell nothing. Um, he, he had one... He, the great thing about him was he had one hit single called um, Call Babe That's Really Free. And, um, and it's absolutely... He's an absolutely hilarious character. Um, but um, but when I was, when I was um, like, just before I went to, to... When I was at school, you know, at school, I just thought he was the greatest. And... Um, his great thing was that you see this is what I loved about um, John Otway. He did this album and he and he got this advance, so he, he made this single and it actually got in the charts. He thought, right, I'm going to go for it. So he 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 hired the London Symphony Orchestra, spent his whole advance <laughs> on one single, which completely this is the second which which completely bombed. Like it did nothing because unfortunately he failed to realize that he's in his, his own idiosyncratic way. He was brilliant, but a crooner, he was not, you know what I mean? It's like amazing. So it was an absolutely fantastically terrible song. <laughs> he, he even chose something really bad. Like he, he did a, he did a cover of green, green grass at home or something uh. mad like that, you know, top bands. It was, no, nah, nobody's brilliant. John not way. Genius. He did things like, um, but he was ahead of his time marketing-wise. He was. He he did things like he he made he made singles, and um, he left say about thirty thirty of the singles left without um, the vocal on the top of it. Right, and he said that if you buy it, I will come into your front room and perform it. Right? And he actually did do that. So like he and he ended up. He said, oh, I ended up in this this housing estate in Glasgow. I was in this this uh, flat, you know. He said, and I, I sang to these these three people. What, what a brilliant idea! Like, nobody else had thought of that. Was his own thing. Another one great thing that John Otway did. I don't want to tell you this, but I just think he's hilarious. He actually signed instead of um, a, a label signing him, he signed a label. I think he signed Warner Brothers to him. Yeah, he signed Warner Brothers. He got he got a, a lawyer, like a solicitor. It was either Warner Brothers or MCA, or like one of these major companies at the time. And he got, he, um, yeah, he got, he got, a, he got a, uh, a lawyer to to uh, draw up a contract saying, yes, I agree to sign. Uh, you know, I, I will, I will sign to MCA, but that or whatever it is, Warner's or him or whatever it was. 
Um, and they were so, and he, and he did it in such a way that they ended up going, oh, goodness sake, yeah, okay. And he, and he actually signed the record label. What a brilliant <laughs> idea. <laughs> what became of be him? Well, he's still going. He's still going. Um, he's, he, he wrote an autobiography called, and he's, 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 um, he's the big song. He said, I had, uh, he said he had two, two songs in the charts. He said, um, and, it, and they were, uh, it was brilliant because they were 25 years apart. And uh, he had something like one when he was 25 and the other one when he was 50. But he wrote this absolutely brilliant biography called Corb Babe's That's Really Me um, because of his hit singles, Corb Babe, That's Really Free. So he like, um, and it's the, honestly, Alex, if you get a chance, shut not wait, buy it. It's the best, it's the best read ever. It's hilarious. It's like, it's as good as um, Ian Hunter's, um, you know, uh, what's, the, what's that, the rock and roll diary thing that he did in the early 70s. Oh, yeah. It's as good as that. It's absolutely the best read. You've just, even Barney Hoskins would like it. He was very short-lived for a lot of people, you see. And um, I, I saw him and, um, when I was, a, I, I saw him when I was, when I, like I say, when I was a teen, there was this seminal program called the Old Grey Whistle Test. Sure. Which was a, a, yeah, yeah, it was a program that came every week. And there was, there were some great bands like the Dams were on and stuff. And that's when it got interesting. But John Otway was on. And he came on with Wild, <laughs> this guitarist called Wild Willie Barrett. And, um, and he, he just came on. Just look, honestly, if you get nothing else from this, just you've got it. Just just <laughs> find out. Do do a search on John Otway, Cool Babe, that's really free. And I, I suggest, I recommend the old grey whistle test because what he did was he, he was very he was very kind of maladroit. He was very kind of a, a bit well, you might say a bit clumsy, you know. Very tall, gangly character. And um but he used to like jumping on the speakers and the PA, but he always ended up falling off them. And this was just chaos because it was a live, I think it was a live performance or something. So he started it okay, but it kind of all went, to, all went wrong. But it went fantastically right for him because everybody thought, God, this bloke's mad, you know. This is incredible. And, it, and from then on, I was a, the complete convert fan. I love, you know, English eccentrics to the, uh, to the hill, you know. Tell me more about that, and and tell me what impression you remember that kind of thing making on you. I remember um, again, uh, you know, at school buying the Dam's Disciples songbook, which was, um, you see, this this made us realise that before everything out beforehand in the sort of seventies and all that, when you went, you know, when you were a kid, you just saw these bands, and you just saw they were from outer space, and there's some kind of like you know, from another planet, you know, like a, a higher being and everything. And then, then it all changed. And then you got stuff like the Damn Disciples Songbook, which was like a fanzine that you get, you could, you could order from, uh, you know, from, uh, from them, from the Damn. And it was like, uh, it was great because it was, it just said, just get yourself a couple of chords, there's three chords, right, start a band. And it was like, okay, that's great. Let's do that, you know. And it was very, uh, it was very like that. And Captain Sensible at the time, I was just, I just thought he was so, he was brilliant. Because he was very, it was like cartoon, cartoony, you know. And it, and it was, it was, just, but it was so good. The pop, the pop was so good, you know. And we're great pop band, the band. Strawberries, what a brilliant album that was. I love yeah, that. See, there you go. I'm, yeah, oh, I do. I just think, yeah, fab band. 
and they they I hold up for me. I, I, I love that. And it sounds too yeah, like I your agree, yeah. like your record collection didn't sound very tribal. It sounds like you were all over the place when you were eighteen or nineteen. I was all over the place, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you'd listen to that and um the only thing I could never get into that the best mate was into was um was like um jazz Charlie Parker and I just couldn't understand that at all. I couldn't get it at all. I mean, and it's really strange that, um, like, there's, there's this thing, um, and st- I still find it quite uh, quite difficult to, uh, you know, to, I, I'm, I'm not into that sort of as much type of stuff. But, yeah, God, yeah. I mean, music's just, uh, it's, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's brilliant now because you've got so, it, it's, 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 in a way, it's easily, it's easily accessible. Although, I just remember very, you know, and I bet everybody does. I mean, I'm sure this is the same for yourself. You know, it was like the quest going to a place in Birmingham called Reddington's Rare Records, which is a, a second-hand record shop, and trying to, you know, trying to find that album, and uh, you know, and 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 discovering other albums and things like that, um, which which, you know, you doesn't exist as much because I, I I was strange enough I was in I was in um, I haven't been for years but I went to London because I went to see a gig um, a French a friend of mine a, a French artist played in London a bloke called Etienne Dow played in London um, and we we went me and a, a guy from France who I'm doing some stuff with at the moment um, we went um, and walked around London and walked around all the places. Because I hadn't been to London for years, and I hadn't lived in London. I lived in London in the late eighties, early nineties, and but I really uh, hadn't been there on uh, during the day. I played gigs at night, but I'd never during the day. And uh, it's really odd because the, the, the there aren't the there aren't the record shops anymore. Obviously, there aren't the big record shops like uh, you know you know Virgin or Tower or stuff, and um, and there aren't the there are fewer like little niche vinyl um, record shops, although they, they are, they've held the really small ones, really small independent like, um, record shops have actually, um, a lot of them have survived because they're uh, very niche, you know, that's a terrible word, you know, terribly used word, but they are very, you know, very specific to certain people. So they'll always attract a similar sort of, People, whether you're in London, Bolton, you know, Stoke or Paris, there's always strange characters or, I guess, San Francisco as well. <laughs> there's always people, like, you know, hunting out vinyl, like you, I'm sure yourself. But uh, but, but, apart, but there, were, there, were, there weren't. But that's the thing. And, and the other thing that uh, um, this French guy I was talking to noticed um, that came over with me, he said... Um, you know what's really strange? There used to be loads and loads of posters and um, loads of adverts for music. Um, you know, like um, see, you know, new albums and stuff like that. And that's all gone, and it's you know, it's been replaced by something else. And that was something that was interesting because I never really. It's not something I picked up on, but I thought, yeah, he's right. You know, because it used to be, it used to be much more in in, in you. But I suppose it's the way that people. The way that people promote um, music now is, is completely different. When you look at your discography and you think of your older material, what is your attitude toward that older work and how do you contextualize it? 
I'll tell you what was really odd. Um, when I was in my, so, so I started in my 20s, okay, so sort of mid-20s, uh, early 20s, mid-20s. And I did not want to talk about anything that came before what I was doing at the time. In my 30s, um, I made um, two, an album, two albums maybe, and then I completely stopped and, and uh, did something and completely changed course. Now, what's interesting is, as you grow older, you kind of um, come to terms and accept and appreciate and, um, and hopefully you realize that at the time you were trying to do the best you can and in retrospect, not to be embarrassed by what you'd done previously. Um, so I'm actually now in a position where I don't mind. I, I don't mind talking about things uh, about my past because it's part of who I was and who I am and who I am, who I you know will be in the future. Um, and what's interesting is that um, I did an album last year. I'm sorry, I did an album 30, 30 years ago called Passer um, Cut with a. Um, Hold on. I did an album with a um, a French guy called Daniel Dark. Right. Uh, about th yeah, thirty years ago exactly. And um, the record label um, said to me last year, it was really strange because it was the guy who did the promotion, um, and he uh, for the for the original album, and and then he went on to be you know, work, work up in this company, which is a, a label called Plate Against Sam, which is now a very big European label. Sure. And he said, um, right, he said, um, we found, it wasn't him actually, it was his predecessors, it's all the, the one and the same. So we found some demos or some, some songs that you've done 30 years ago that we found in a drawer that were from the same time as when you recorded this album you see and he said um and people still kind of like talk about this album you know only like three people and a dog or somebody <laughs> does you know so he's going um do you want it? he said you know he said uh, how do you feel about us putting out i said well yeah but can you this time if we're going to do it can we do it as um uh, can we really work together and actually create something that, that we would be proud of and that's creative in, its, uh, in itself. So putting a reissue out um, that, that actually isn't just sticking it out because it will sell a few copies because of, of the time and the place. Um, and that basically the, whoever's, whoever used to buy it, their vinyl has fallen to bits and got, they want to replace it with a new one, you know. So... Um, I was quite happy that they released it on the, the exact same day, 30 years on, on the 28th of September uh, 2018, uh, when they, uh, 30 years ago, when it was 30 years on, um, they released it last year as a double album, double vinyl, which is fantastic. So it was 20 songs. So they actually found 10 tracks that um, we'd recorded, me and this guy, Daniel Dark, had recorded. But we, um, but never, we we just left them. They were they were either going to be Parsica de, or Guapa, whatever it is, you know, I don't know, or and ended up elsewhere. So, um, and I I'd left and we weren't finished. 
and um, it was re- um, it was released. And I I didn't mind. I it, because of the because of the well, there was two things. One, Daniel, um, as a, lov- a lovely bloke, a real rise in life character, and but he's passed away, so he died. He died um, a few years earlier, um, and he's become quite rightly again. You know, he's now people get the fact how how important, influential, what a great poet he was. Um, you know, years and years later. Well, they did at the time because he's, he, he had a couple of albums that, that finally got commercial success in France. Um, but I, I really enjoyed um, having a come because I was, you know, I, I interviews with, with people and I was quite happy to do interviews um, with people talking about that particular album, the process of, of it, looking back and, and seeing how I felt. And it was quite... Um, it was quite a nice experience, to be honest, Alex. Um, and it's not something that... It's a very odd thing because you're not... It's, it's an unusual thing for you to be asked about a specific event that you've done in your 20s, in your 50s. Um, and <laughs> right. so specifically, it's ever so strange, but it's a weird, weird thing. And it's, it's like this, this conversation we're having now brings out things... Um, and I see it as colours, you know, and 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 I I see that album, I see each album that I've done or whatever as, as a particular colour, and I just saw colours coming out there, and um, it was great. It was a very, it was it was like, yeah, that actually, you know what, that wasn't that wasn't a bad album because but for years I was I thought that plastic kid awful. Oh God, <laughs> that what you do, and if you're the same, like you say with books, when you've written a book, you're oh God, I don't know about that. It's awful kind of thing. I don't know if you feel that, but do I? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. But look, do you know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I feel the same way about. I felt the same way, but I I ended up thinking, coming to the conclusion that I didn't put out anything incredibly embarrassingly bad, and so as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> mediocrity is a success. As far as I'm <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's nothing in like I wasn't. I, I never, I, ne- I, I think I was quite savvy in my own way. It was, it was almost unconscious. I never got into the position. Um, I never put myself in the position of being with a le- with with any any kind of outside influence who had the, the power to insist on me um, recording a NAV uh, cover version of something so that it would be a quick hit or something like that. Right, I never, you know what I mean. Yeah, never ever did. I never, I never did that, um, and I'm really glad. Could he be any lovelier? What a great guy, Bill Pritchard. Uh, not a recluse, and uh, to prove it, that's part one of two. You don't have a two-part podcast with a recluse. <laughs> you don't. You know, you think if J.D. Salinger was alive, he'd be on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast? I don't think so. Anyway, Bill Pritchard, not a recluse, not that elusive, but immensely talented, and just an incredibly nice guy. Uh, now, BillPritchardMusic.com will give you everything you need to know about Bill Pritchard. Uh, buy his new album, buy his old albums, go see him on tour, 
and tell them you heard him here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Now, if you want more information about me, alexgreenonline.com will uh, take care of that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can follow me on Instagram, Embers Podcast. You can email me at editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Maybe there's someone you want me to get on the show. Maybe you want me to bring somebody back. Whatever. Drop me a line and let me know, and I'll take care of the rest. Okay? Hey, if you're on iTunes, subscribe to the show. And since you're there, subscribe to Bombshell Radio as well. And if you wouldn't mind, leave us a rating, maybe a kind comment. It would mean the world to us. I know it shouldn't, but it does. High school was hard. Okay, now let's close things off with one of Bill's older songs. This is from 1988. It's called Celia's Attic, and it's a personal favorite of mine. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next week for part two of my chat with Bill Pritchard, only right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. The sound of the Wigmore Street crowd was lavishly loud And those cigarette sandwich bachelors make me nervous A hotel surrounded by a double room And the stuffy sound of religion It's always cold at two o'clock I know the Bond Street tube confuses you So I'll sleep in Celia's attic Oh, I'll sleep in Celia's attic With the sound of Whitmore Street on the ground Tottenham was caught in the sound of sport And unpaid bills those secretive nights of Atlantic Lane fights of season sights and Casper John. So I'll sleep in Celia's attic. Oh, I'll sleep in Celia's attic with the sound of Wigmore Street on the ground. Sandwich bachelors make me nervous So I'll sleep in Celia's attic Oh, I'll sleep in Celia's attic With the sound of Wigmore Street on the ground